All right, Lindsay Strand again. Thank you for being back with me for part two of the Jesus Movement Music Dual Feed Extravaganza. I'm ready. Let's let's get into it. So we left off last time at the end of 1969. We are now dipping into the 70s. Mm. And in the early 70s, historians of this movement highlight this thing called Young American Showcase. So I've never heard of this. I imagine you haven't earlier, but I'm pretty sure the model will be familiar to you. So this guy, Lowell Little, he put together multiple touring bands. He was like the... You know, who was the NSYNC Backstreet Boys uh, period Ponzi scheme guy? Oh, gosh. I'm was blanking that on name? who it was. I, I know who you're talking about, but yeah. I don't know his he name. Was like the, that, he was like that guy of <laughs> early Jesus movement music. So they would send these bands around the country playing regular high schools during school, like public schools during school assembly. Okay. And they would play top 40 songs during the school hour. So stuff like the Hollies or the Doors. So for instance, if you were in one of these high school assemblies in 1970 or so, there's this group of young Christian musicians, but they might be playing something like Break On Through to the, to the Other Side by the Doors. And they're not changing the lyrics to make them about Jesus? No, they're just playing the song as it is. So in terms of like edgy coolness factor, right there, they're kind of putting that foot forward. They're doing what local bands did in that era. There's a a lot of cover songs. It's like when I would go to church camp and we would sing uh, Help by the Beatles. But of course, we were singing it to the Lord. (laughs) So I need somebody help, not just anybody. You need the King of Kings, my friend. Yeah, you got it. You got there. I am having a hard time wrapping my brain around Christian bands going to public schools, playing the doors and how I don't know these people. I don't know these Christians. But these these bands that would travel around, they would then put on an inexpensive concert later in the evening with more songs and a gospel message. At the Mm. end, they provide literature on evangelical Christianity. There we go. Now there's the familiarity, right? Yep. So this Young American Showcase was actually kind of ahead of its time, kind of edgy. In one year alone, they claim that they got 40,000 decisions for Christ across okay. all the bands combined. Okay. Now, just like now we have our own sort of issues with that in today, you know, today as we think about mm-hmm. it. But if you put yourself in that time, if you're one of those band members or in that organization, like just imagine how insanely meaningful that would have felt like you're a part of this massive national, you know, movement, tens of thousands of people a year just from your group alone, Mm -hmm. you know, are sort of coming to faith. But kind of like back in the 60s where, 50s and 60s where evangelicals were sort of on the front lines of this, you know, aesthetic war over rock and roll, the emphasis on the top 40 songs, on the Doors and the Hollies and all that stuff, the Beatles songs, actually kept most evangelicals away And Mm. this guy's work was not embraced widely. This model was not replicated widely. He was on to something that would end up being tremendously influential in the decades to come for this generation 
of people. And that's kind of where it started is in this young American showcase. Also, what a like, <laughs> what, a what name. like a, yeah, Dick Clark's, um, you know, American bandstand kind of a title for that. Right. Well, and again, the fact that it didn't have a cheeky Christian title, you know, right. it wasn't, I, I mean, I was like, you know, in high school in the nineties. And so everything was like against the grain and, you know, what is it? All the Christian coffee shops that were like solid grounds. I feel like right. everything was like a weird Christian play on something else. So I, I kind of appreciate just the solid standard young American showcase name. It's kind of, kind of great. Yeah. I like that too. So 1971, right. We're going to talk about an artist now who does not properly fit into the Jesus movement music. Like he was never directly associated with it, but I think he's a good example of just how far and wide this influence is going in the early seventies. We're really coming to peak Jesus movement here. There's a guy named Bill Fay. He is one of these kind of lost songwriters of the seventies. Like he put out a couple records on Decca recordings and then didn't sell super well, kind of became like a cult figure for you know, like crate digging music lovers, mm -hmm. you know, into the 80s, 90s, etc. And he sort of gets a cult following, eventually includes people like Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, who's involved mm. in this like renaissance. So he's put out a bunch of records since 2012, like a, a whole second era of his career as a very old man, English guy, spent decades uh, as a factory janitor. Literally, that's that's what he did for a living. Um, but his 1971 album, this is the second of his two in his kind of initial career, is called Time of the Last Persecution. The album cover is pretty incredible. He is basically a stoner Old Testament prophet. I'm excited about this. <laughs> there we go. Can you see that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, lo he looks like... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, if Charles like Manson was, I was going to say Charles Manson vibes for sure. Charles Manson vibes. If Charles Manson was maximally stoned, that's sort of what he looks like on the cover of this right. album, and especially just the big like what it looks like like Helvetica font, like really simple, like uh -huh. time of the last persecution. He's in black and white. Yeah, just it's very. I don't know if he's trying to give off like Jesus vibes. I don't well, know. Like, let's yeah. talk about it. So, so there is a lot of kind of apocalypticism on this record and he's, again, he's not really in the Jesus movement, but he's doing sort of high level folk inspired stuff over in England. So he's not American either. This track plan D is a, just a super meaningful song to me personally. I sort of fallen in love with Bill Fay's music. Here are the lyrics of the section I'm going to play. You were born, though you need not have been born here at all. And is that not some cause for worship, being born here among these trees, though the beast is lurking? Dang. So the beast is lurking part. Okay, I got a little issues with that. But <laughs> I love that idea of, you know, it is cause for worship to have been born at all. Life is such a gift kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, but let's just hear this. Let's put ourselves into 1971 as this Jesus movement influence is making its way all around the world. You were born, though you need not have been born here at all. Some cause for worship 
being born among these trees though the beast is looking i mean bravo bill bravo that's all i got bravo bill fay you know if you're into that kind of early 70s singer songwriter stuff i would highly recommend those first two records and also 2012's life is people which jeff uh, jeff tweedy from wilco was involved in and sings on one of the one of the songs and uh, Bill Fay, great. But I just think it's a cool example again of like it's getting around. The, it's in the air basically. And that mm-hmm. apocalypticism, the beast is lurking is undeniably associated with the kind of stuff that's coming out of California. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Also in 1971, remember Barry Maguire from last time? He had oh, yeah. Eve of Destruction. I'll just just to just to refresh our memories. This is Barry and even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, I you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. Again, there's that apocalypticism, although that's from 1965, but it, of course it carries through into the 70s. And in 71, that guy becomes a born again Christian six years after Eve of Destruction. So I'm going to play a track of his. Now, this is technically a later recording uh, of a 1975 song. So we're, it's a live recording. We're jumping around a little bit in time, but I I think this track gets to something that Barry is bringing in. And you also can kind of hear his power as a singer and the power of his band. So this is anyone but Jesus. Now I I mean, it's not as good as his earlier work. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, buddy, I you, wish you, you would sing about something other than Jesus. Just every once in a while, like just here and there. But it was good. Don't uh, get yeah, me wrong. Like his vocals. He, but he's like, not going to. No, he's not going <laughs> he, to. He is not going to think about, talk about, or sing about anyone but Jesus. It made me think of what you talked about in part one about this. This It might have been your mom. It might have just been a general expectation in Christian culture that like every song has to be about Jesus. That's why we can't do the black gospel thing where some songs are also about sex or other parts of life. It's all got to be about Jesus. And this song just kind of rams like straight down the middle with that Mm -hmm. kind of message, you know? And I think that sonically though, I like what's going on there. Like that's a pretty ripping live band for kind of seventies rock. Yeah. Yeah. And really that's, kind of in a nutshell, what's going on in this first 10 year chunk of time before contemporary Christian music as an infrastructure, as like a business, before that really turns into its a fully fleshed out thing. It is pretty great bands, a lot of plenty of talented musicians, still not not as good as like what's going on in the general market, but not that far off. But then just lyrically, just Christian lyrics. That's essentially yeah. what's going on. And sonically, it is often indistinguishable from secular music. And I actually think that that's kind of a cool connection point for the musical environment that you and I grew up in 
as evangelicals. So we had Christian punk, hardcore, ska, metal bands. And some of those bands were lower quality, but for the higher quality ones, they were indistinguishable from the secular music. And even if they weren't as good, it, it wasn't like they sounded much different. They just had Christian lyrics. And just like with the traditionalists in 1971, a lot of our parents' generation and other people were like, well, that can't possibly be godly. And it's like we just literally played the exact same part of the playbook back 25 years later with yes. tooth and nail bands. It, 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 like you mentioned again, like same as it ever was, something's never changed. That kind of push and pull of youth culture and traditionalists, it just feels exactly like that to me. Yeah, we're going to take this one thing that's secular and it sounds right and we like it, but we can't really admit that we like it because like Jesus wouldn't be into that. So we're just going to take it and we'll just change the words and like repackage it and good to go. Well, I th- I think too, people have a real sort of sense of mission. You know, I think mm-hmm. about a guy like Reese Roper from Five Iron Frenzy. Like I think that he was very genuinely trying to, to do something faithful and also something artistically viable. I think he succeeded. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be comfortable saying that that was just out of his own sort of anxiety or whatever, that he couldn't be secular. Although I'm sure there, that is true for plenty uh, right. of these artists. I think that there was just so many of like the worst artists, I guess the ones that just felt like a direct rip off of like the fucking W's, right? Like I was literally was just like, thinking of the W's. <laughs> <laughs> Where like of all the bands. That's hilarious because they were so it was like, okay, well, swing's popular and we got to figure out a way to do this, but with Jesus, it just to me it just felt like a manufactured band from a marketing granted maybe they were around and some marketing person found them and were like great you're a swing band talking about god we need this because this is popular right now but i think i will have a regret for the rest of my life that i liked a song called you are the devil and the devil is bad like i just (laughs) like that was a that was a time i was just trying to find that on apple music and it doesn't appear to be on there i was gonna play it (laughs) Um, okay, well, but, sorry to you all that you don't get to hear that gem. <laughs> okay, but I think there's one more little point here that's interesting. So in the early 70s, late 60s, and again in the 90s when we grew up, it's like we've got these talented musicians, young, in these sort of subcultures, doing a pretty faithful rendition of the music of their secular peers, but putting a message that resonates with their faith and other people's faith on top of it instead. But what eventually happens with CCM is exactly inverse of that. Nowadays, you can flip through a radio, not listen to any lyrics, and you can tell sonically that it's a worship station. Yes. If you didn't speak English, you know, but you had heard enough, you could determine which was worship music. So that that's a genuine shift. And it Mm -hmm. becomes now there is this aesthetic thing that we are going to package for Christians by Christians. That is Uh, safe for the whole family. Safe for the whole family. Right. Exactly. And so it's like it's shaving off even the aesthetic similarities to secular culture and creating more of a silo, you know, even musically, like um, production wise, which I think is interesting. I think it's a bummer. It is a bummer. Um, like we're, for all, we're, those ki- yeah. all those kids being raised in conservative Christian homes right now, I'm sorry that you don't have your own personal MXPX. 
<laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there, there are still things like the hardcore, you know, bands and stuff like that. Yeah. Of course, there are yeah. still options. Um, and and arguably, the Christian metal scene has been maybe even the most successful at sort of keeping that alive sonically and and not really watering that down. But anyway, I'll tell you what doesn't suck is the debut album by Agape, Gospel Hard Rock. The cover of this album looks like a Rorschach Jesus or like (laughs) Jesus burnt on a piece of toast in simple black and white. Here is the track Man from that 1971 album by Agape. He came from Some of you might be saying, Dan, that was actually quite bad. (laughs) (laughs) Your mileage might vary. Uh, But that band, Agape, really important to that SoCal Costa Mesa scene. They were, I believe they were members of Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee's church, like right at the epicenter of that Mm -hmm. movement. I was like, I feel like I know one of their songs. Did they have, was that their most famous song? That's a good question. I don't think so because that record is only on YouTube. But no, I don't think that that's their kind of biggest stuff. It's just their first record. So I, okay. I, I threw it in. But here's something that was truly big. And this album comes up in the uh, documentary, The Jesus Music. It is a record called The Everlasting Living Jesus Music Concert. Say that five times fast. Right. This was a big turning point, apparently, for Michael W. Smith and others, possibly Amy Grant. They made this record in California for $4,000. At this time, there is no Christian music industry infrastructure like we think of it today. There are no Christian record distributors. And despite this, they sell 200,000 copies of this album. Dang. That's how much of a market there is for this music. There is so much demand for what's coming out of California and a little bit on the East coast. So here is a band called love song and this is their track Maranatha from that record. Maranatha, Maranatha, the master's coming home. We must prepare our hearts so we can meet him. Maranatha, Maranatha, Lord is coming back. We must be filled with love to truly greet The master went away from us 2,000 years ago. I'm kind of into it. Kind of into it? Yeah. It was like a little creepy. Uh, also the fixation on Jesus coming back. Like, you know, the, the apop- apocalyptic nature of all of this uh, is interesting. But I was trying to think of what it reminded me of. And I don't know. It definitely has that like that hippie. You want to sway like I can imagine, you know, the long hair and the peace signs like it's got all those vibes. You know what it kind of reminds me of is a band like Midlake. (gasps) Mid 2000s kind of 70s Fleetwood Mac revival. Oh, I love Midlake, man. Like check out Roscoe. Listen to this. Oh, this song slaps.
there's some there's some DNA there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now remember, Midlake probably had fifteen to thirty thousand dollars to make that record, and they made this entire you know compilation. Basically, it's like a live. I don't know if it's all live or if it's just like the songs they did at the church, but they did it for four grand. So. Let's jump to 1972. This is a a song by them I like even more. This track's called Welcome Back. So that lyric right there, welcome back to what you once believed in. Welcome back to what you knew was right from the start. Did, did that mm. hit you a little bit? <laughs> Dan, I'm triggered. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it feels, I'm like, is that condescending? I can't tell how I feel about it. It's like, I get what they're going for, but it certainly feels like, oh, you straight away, you little rascal. And now welcome back into the fold. Also, this song straight up sounds like, my least favorite kind of church song, which is the ones that just like went on and on and on and on. And like the altar call song, I'm such a, I'm always cognizant of time. I'm so like organized. And so the style of worship where people would just say like, you know, I could sing of like your love forever. I'm like, it's not meant to be taken literally. People. Like, <laughs> please stop. I just feel like this song, Welcome Back, would be a really good altar call song and where they could just keep it going and just change the key occasionally. Just yeah. I, could, I could feel that. My mom calls those 24-7 songs, 27 Ugh. words sung 24 times. Yeah, um, hard pass. Hard pass for me on those. Okay, <laughs> so that's also 72. And in 72, Andre Crouch, again, he's the he's kind of the one black artist whose songs penetrate far enough into the largely white Jesus movement that he ends up getting put on these festivals. He ends up making these compilation, you know, records and stuff like that. He he he's a part of the conversation in a way that other gospel artists are not. And this is a cool track called You Ain't Living. You may be a ruler or a king You may have the best of everything You may be a millionaire But the father made it so And here's one thing he wants the world to know You ain't living until you've met the Savior Had a prisoner with me that chorus was, yeah. It's such a cool song. And that tambourine, I mean, it's just it's <sighs> vibes, good vibes. I like everything about that other than maybe like, okay, you ain't living unless you've had a personal experience. I mean, I recognize all that language, Or of the, course. you're only a millionaire because Jesus made you so. I was like, uh, okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some questionable (laughs) theology perhaps, but oh my gosh, like no wonder that stuff breaks in. Cause like you would just have to be deaf or in complete denial to not want that song as a part of your heritage for, for this musical period. Yeah. Still bummed that he was not part of like the canon that I I listened to growing up. It's just poof. What a loss. So another big name. Uh, who comes up in a lot of these sort of retrospectives is Paul Clark. 
And in 72, he releases his first album, Songs from a Savior. This is called Song for Salvation. Jesus, come in me. Although I'm not worthy to sit at your you for making me able to be a part of your body that moves so freely is this one you had to be there you know one of those like, this feels like some real closeted vibes here <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Okay, to be clear, we are not psychoanalyzing. No, I'm not. No, 30 no, I'm seconds not, not. of someone's song and saying that they're a closeted gay man. But okay, that's the <laughs> vibes you're getting. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Also, 1972, we get the next Larry Norman record, Only Visiting This Planet, mm. which has two songs that we need to play and talk about. The first one is. Why should the devil have all the good music? Oh, this song. Oh, I love this song. The title of a recent monograph about him, and maybe even there's a documentary, maybe just a book, but uh, this is a cool song. I want the people to know that he saved my soul, but I still like to listen to the radio. They say rock and roll is wrong, we'll give you one more chance. I say I feel so good, I gotta get up and dance. I know what's right, I know what's wrong. I don't feel I mean, it's cheesy as all get out, but it's fun. And it's, I mean, it just brings me back to summer camp personally. I mean, that was, we'd all, all, yeah, that was our jam. So, but again, I will say leaning into like the going a little more conservative, it is sort of now we're demonizing rock and roll, right? Like that's the devil's music. And I'm sure that that's what people were saying at this time, but for it to be in a song. I think he's like, explicitly pushing back against that. I think he's basically, oh, you think so? yeah, I think he's satirizing that sometimes people don't understand what's a good boy doing in a rock and roll band. There's nothing wrong with playing blues ricks, blues licks, you know, he, he's basically like, it's totally fine. I, okay. I think he, I think he's sort of inhabiting that argument to basically, I mean, his I whole record, so. he's making rock records. I mean, like, yeah. that would yeah. be kind of weird well, if he, you know. No, but I'm saying uh, I always interpreted it as all the rock and roll is the devil's music. Oh, so that we got to yeah. make our own rock and roll that's about Jesus that isn't. Like, I was raised sure. to believe that a lot of this rock and roll was bad. It's all about drugs. It's all yeah. about sex, right? So I think there's to something take- to that. I think there's something to that. And, and you know, he certainly, you know, it, it's like that Paul McCartney thing from, from last time. You know, if you drop the God stuff, you could be famous. And he very specifically does not drop the God stuff. He's like, right. no, I am, this is where I am staking my claim. I am doing this explicitly, just like Barry Maguire. I'm I'm not going to think, talk, or sing about anything but Jesus. They are really, you know, it, it's interesting because I did not grow up with this song or this record or his music at all. So I am hearing it with pretty fresh ears. I mean, I, I listened to it to prep for this episode. That was it. And man, saw like, yeah, lyrically, it's kind of a, you know, it's very straightforward. It's kind of tongue in cheek. It's kind of cheesy. Musically, 
it rips. Like for 1972, yeah. it sounds like we're, we're about to hear from Elton John. If you had Elton John singing on that track instead of Larry Norman, I would not know that it wasn't an Elton John track. Like it is yeah. well recorded, great players, great arrangement. His vocals are awesome. Like he's just a, he is like a rock star. He's a true early seventies rock star. Who's chosen to do this faith music instead. And I get why, I guess I'm saying I get why he's so important to this story because yeah. he just rips. Yeah. Uh, I mean, then uh, what I think is the next song we're going to listen to of yes. his is like yes. so deeply entrenched in my childhood. Now we're getting how to- <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting to Dan's trauma narrative. OK, so yes. this next song is called from the same record. Uh, I wish we'd all been ready. And this is a song about the rapture. And I'm it not was, ready. I'm not ready. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have to play it. Tr- trigger all the trigger warnings here. Uh, this was the main track for a independent film that was nonetheless widely, widely seen. It's called A Thief in the Night, which is actually one of a trilogy of films. There's A Distant Thunder, A Thief in the Night, and then one other one, I believe. And this is kind of that film also spread this song. But of course, Larry Norman was also kind of a big deal at this point. Here is I Wish We'd All Been Ready. There's no time to change your mind The sun has come and you've been left behind I think I finally have enough distance to admit that that is a really great melody and chord structure. Yeah. It's a good pop yeah. song. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking, <sighs> of, oh, this could have been used in like Avengers Endgame. Like, or whatever, like the snap. <laughs> the snap? Yeah. <laughs> Literal, literally 50%. There you go. So this song, you know, the two, this is a, a quote from Jesus, two men walking up a hill or whatever. It's all reinterpreted by, we don't need to do too much of Dan's theology corner here, but it's called premillennial dispensationalism. It is the, it is the view that is espoused in the left behind books, which were big in the nineties and, and two thousands. And it's the view espoused by Hal Lindsey's late great planet earth, which is a Massive bestseller in the early 70s. And it is a foundational belief of both Calvary Chapel and the larger Jesus movement that they were living in the final generation before Christ's literal return to earth, his second coming, after which there would be a seven year tribulation period and the Antichrist would reign. And, you know, if you if you know that stuff, fill in all the details. This was almost universally believed by the entire Jesus movement. This is one of the most interesting questions of my entire life is how was that so plausible to them? And, you know, I've done episodes on it. We don't have to go into it a bunch here. It is the main source of my own personal religious trauma. Probably the only real religious trauma I've experienced is around this stuff. Same. Yeah. For the most part, or the biggest. Yeah. Well, only it was only your sister that had martyrdom expectations, I guess, because you didn't really believe that stuff from your mom. Let's get a palate cleanser here. So we're still in Let's. 1972. We talked about Bill Fay back in 71, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the way that this American primarily Jesus movement is just sending shockwaves even, even across the Atlantic. And maybe the coolest mention of this movement in popular culture is in... 
I think the best Elton John song ever, Tiny Dancer. Hmm. We get to hear a little bit about Jesus Freaks. Come on. So good. Jesus Freaks out in the streets, handing tickets out for God. And then the character, I, I'm not sure if she's supposed to be a sex worker or what, but she's, you know, she's basically rejecting um, mm-hmm. the line from the Jesus Freaks. But like, that's how big it was. Like, it, it makes its way into these songs. And you also do sort of see like, as good as Larry Norman is, like, nothing he did was as good as that. You know, there is yeah. still a, a quality gap you can also yeah. hear there. Also in 72, like I I mentioned this in the last part, this is really the peak. So I called it a Woodstock festival. What I meant to say is a, like a Christian Woodstock, a Woodstock like festival, Mm -hmm. as many as 200,000 people. It was called Explo 72, AKA Jesus sound explosion. (laughs) And uh, by the way, which is a nice framework template for later youth group names when these people all grew up. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Jesus Sound Explosion sounds like the Wednesday night event at my uh, non-denominational church growing up. (laughs) Anyway, this is a Billy Graham event. So by 72, Billy Graham, skeptical in 1960, says I'd stay away from rock and roll. Restless Ones, 1965, dipping his toes. By 72, he is all in, fully embracing the Jesus movement. He's got that sound explosion. (laughs) Jesus Sound Explosion. So this, I mean, it sounds like it was a pretty rad festival. Larry Norman, Johnny Cash, Andre Crouch, Chris Christopherson all perform. What? Okay, yeah, that rules. Yep, so so musically, it's pretty great. I'm going to play a clip here of Billy Graham speaking at this event. I took this from the Jesus Movement, that documentary. Uh, here is uh, what he had to say. True faith must be applied to the social problems of our world. Today, Christian young people ought to be involved in the problems of poverty, ecology, war, racial tension, and all the other problems of our generation. This is a Christian happening. It's a demonstration of the love of God by tens of thousands of young people to the world that are saying to the world, God loves you. It's the Jesus revolution that is going on in this country. Now, let's deconstruct this a little bit. I think there's some interesting stuff under the surface. So first of all, that's from the Jesus music documentary. And they put that inspirational string music under it because in the narrative of that film, this is sort of like, you know, for for people who want to watch a documentary about Christian music, Billy Graham is still essentially, he's their C.S. Lewis or however you want to say it. He's he's the number one guy, right? So- In the film, this is sort of like Billy Graham gives his stamp of approval. And so we're going to really highlight this moment with an inspirational score. But I think for our purposes, I'm more interested in the specifics of the language that he uses. Young people today ought to be involved in the problems of poverty, ecology, war, racial tension, and all the other problems of our generation. There's also a clip that you can find elsewhere of the entire crowd singing, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Mm. So 
I think that this is a pretty great encapsulation, really, of kind of these more sociological questions that we raised in the last part. So we we contrast this with the cultural mainline Christianity that the young kids had been exposed to, but these people largely backed the Vietnam War. They largely opposed the civil rights movement, right? But if you think about those words, Billy Graham does not specify how and in, how involved a young person should be with poverty, environmentalism, war, racial tension. For Billy Graham, as well as for Chuck Smith and all the other fundamentalist preachers who embraced these Jesus hippies, all of that stuff was still secondary to making converts to Christianity. Mm -hmm. So in a way, Billy Graham is getting to have his cake and eat it too. And so are the Jesus movement people. You get to be a member of a, a youth generation, a giant youth movement, a movement for justice mm -hmm. in this world, but the main vehicle through which that change is supposed to occur is through your church involvement, your spiritual practice, through people coming to relationship with Jesus Christ, not through marching, not through protests, not through civil disobedience, right? And not even through a lot of like action as far as starting social programs or, you know, I feel like actually like helping the poor. I'm sure they talked about that, but it was just much more like you need to get right with Jesus and then the other stuff you'll just like figure out. It's either a way of getting into evangelistic conversations with other young people mm -hmm. or it is. So that's like one way of thinking of the relationship between the social issue, you know, being involved in the social issues. Or if you're thinking at a mechanistic level for white evangelical Protestants, the idea is that changing hearts for Jesus is the mechanism by which all of these other things will be solved. So give these people they're singing, they'll know we're Christians by our love, taking a kind of milk toast is, is maybe too harsh of a term, but a sort of middle of the road, justice -y take, mm -hmm. but all framed by a personal relationship with Jesus. Give them eight years of a very disillusioning 1970s, inflation, crime, Vietnam goes on. I kind of think, no wonder they bought what Reagan was selling in 1980. We're going to skip to 1974, two years later. The music is not over, even though that was the peak. Now, because there are so many people involved, we're starting to get more infrastructure. This stuff is going more widely. Here is Resurrection Band. And this is a band that I think is maybe even still playing today. They're, they're one of those original groups that sort of kept it going. This is Crimson River from music to raise the dead, which they recorded on a four track in one of their mom's basements. <laughs> but it sounds kind of rad. A lot more rocking than I remember them being. I remember hearing their name, but I don't think I listened to a ton of music. That was pretty good. Yeah. Also in 74, Petra, a Christian <sighs> rock band that I did not grow up listening to, but a lot of my friends did. Did oh, you grow up with Petra? Petra? Yes. Yes, I did. 
So 74 is their first record, debut self-titled. Here is Walkin' in the Light. That sounds like Kiss to me. Yeah, I don't. I did not grow up on this Petra. I grew up on the red is the color of the blood that flow. You know what I'm talking about? Well, I mean, I don't know it. I just sort of know of it. Yeah. That to me is like quintessential Petra. I didn't know that they like jammed. Like, can we can we listen to the colors? Is that possible? Let's find it. The coloring song. Here we go. Petra. This is from 1991. No, 81. 81. Red. Yeah, hard pass for me. <laughs> uh, I think they go through a lot of other colors, just so you know. That was just red. That was the verse about red. There's more. Uh, I don't think yeah. that blue or brown or, or white is going to really make a <laughs> dent for me. Uh, give me that 74 Petra if I'm choosing. A lot happened in those years for Petra, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> they had a rough seven year stretch there, apparently. Um, they added somewhat pan flute. Was that what was oh happening there? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Was that Jethro Toll sort of uh, <laughs> wearing off on them, rubbing off on them? Also 74 and then going into 75, we're going to do back to back second chapter of Axe songs. Heck yes. uh, what a silly band name. But dude, some of their stuff rips. This is 1974's Which Way the Wind Blows from their album with footnotes. Kind of a clever album title. Hmm. Did you hear that synth? Yeah, it was wild. It was, it that is, had some heft to it. 1974. I mean, that is early synth days, by the way. Mm-hmm. That is not 80s music. Uh, dude, that is a chorus. Yeah. It really, it, t- it took a minute to get there, but when it yeah. got there, I was like, damn, okay. Like, okay, second check chapter of Axe, get yeah. it. Okay, next year, second album, in the column of the book, here is Last Day of My Life with, I think, some Queen vibes. Mm. Instead, I'm sure I'd jump for joy and reach the sky. Cause I've been dying for it. Dying for it. And I know that there are those that say he lied. He was a false teacher. 
Okay, a few things to break down here. First of all, again, some real cringy lyrics. Uh, it just doesn't, mm-hmm. it generally does not work for me when artists just like replace it with Christian words. You know, like I love John Davis from Super Drag's self-titled album after he became a Christian. And the only thing I don't love about it is sometimes when he does that lyrically. It's just like, mm. I don't know, I'm sensitive to it. There's that. More interestingly, when I've talked to boomers about this era, every single one of them mentions Second Chapter of Acts, a band I had never heard of. But in context here, I get why they were a big deal. These records sound huge. They are mm-hmm. really well recorded. They are great singers. They are mm-hmm. really sonically ambitious on these songs. And they're basically musically and production-wise, they're totally landing the plane. These are yeah. these are big accomplishments. And I will say, I think in what we've been working through, this is like the first like kind of feminine energy we've brought to the table. So I think that like the male and female vocals is is a nice I didn't realize like, oh, we've only been listening to dudes for a long time. And it's kind of right. it was nice to have both. So yeah. That's true. That's a really great point. Okay, so second chapter of Acts, I mean, they have been like fully added to my rotation. Like they're <laughs> I'm into it. Okay. So that's 75. Also in 75, Keith Green becomes a Christian. We haven't heard any of his music yet, but now he's on a path and and we're going to, we're going to get to him. All right. 1976, Keith Green is signed to Sparrow Records, one of these very early Christian record labels. I was like, so now we have Christian record labels. We're starting to have Christian record labels. He starts working on albums with artists like Second Chapter of Acts. So they are- sort of, you know, working with him and Randy Stonehill. He is another very important name in this world. In 1976, he puts out his first record. It was produced by Larry Norman. It's called Welcome to Paradise. So we're starting to see like a core of kind of L.A. based. I guess I don't know that they're all they're all living in L.A., but they're working in L.A., and we have this core of like, there's a handful of big names. They're working with each other, producing each other's records. They're kind of forming, you know, this early proto kind of recording scene. Uh, here's Randy Stonehill, 76, Keep Me Running, which to me sounds like, again, Midlake and also Jackson Brown. It's great. Yeah. So what I'm hearing here is by the mid seventies, there are enough people who sort of know what they're doing in the studio. Like that record was engineered by Andy Johns, who by 75, 76 had already worked with the Rolling Stones, television and Led Zeppelin. Mm. So, you know, it's like there are real artisans in the room now kind of molding songs, molding records. In 2001, CCM Magazine did like a, you know, 50 or 100 greatest Christian albums of all time. And this first Randy Stonehill record was number 13. Oh. So he's really influential. Some more Randy. By the way, this was number one. Yeah, hell yeah, Amy. Me on, me on, to a place where the 
Fun I mean, trivia there. You already know how I feel about that song. <laughs> yes, I do. I do know. Uh, okay, we're in 77. We're on the home stretch here. Petra, next album. Let's see if we're starting to see their uh, evolution. Come and Join Us is the name of the album. Here is God Gave Rock and Roll to You. Kind of kind of pulling on that Larry Norman mm-hmm. thread, very explicitly sort of, it's like there's an anxiety in the crowd that these artists feel they have to address. Yes, and I, there as, probably is, honestly. Well, there <laughs> like, is, and yeah, you and yeah. I, and we are a testament to the fact that that anxiety never went away. It's probably Mm-mm. still there today. Mm-hmm. It's just a generational thing. It's old and young. It's new and tradition. You know, it's all there. It, it never leaves. But but here's God gave rock and roll to you. They really were just like a 70s rock band in the 70s. Yeah. That's a great chorus. It's it put it in the soul of everyone. God put rock and roll in my soul, y'all. Yeah. I didn't know that till right now. So thanks for that, Petra. Okay, here's my question for you. You know, them and Larry Norman and others kind of making this explicit space for rock music within Christian culture. Should we be grateful? Without Petra, do we get MXPX? I guess that's my question. I mean... Maybe not. I think that they made it cool. And they. I think the thing I'm gleaning from all of this is that they actually took the time to make it sound good. And I think that Christian music now is a little bit of a far cry from that, or it's created its own sound like we were talking about yeah, earlier. Yeah, it's just a different but, thing now. Yeah. Right. And so it sort of paved the way for all of these other bands that we grew up listening to that like of course, the heart and the lyrics and all that is important, but I actually feel like the most important was that it sounded good. And and then the the lyrics, they just kind of threw in some corny lyrics on top. Like they were like, we're going to write really good songs and then we'll like work Jesus in there. I don't know. I, I don't actually know that to be true, but that's what it feels like. It feels like the music actually came first, that they wrote good music. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's totally plausible and probably true in a lot of cases. I, I think that Maybe just because this movement was so big and even a few years after the peak, you know, of like 1972-ish, there's still millions and millions of basically Jesus movement evangelicals now. And so mm-hmm. if you're not worried about getting on secular radio, you don't you don't care. Like you probably think it is artistically reasonable to, to do the lyrics that way. And it's expressing really your lived experience authentically. It just doesn't hold up as well over time, you know? Uh, yeah. But I, I kind of get how in the moment they thought that it did make sense. Does that make, does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Also in 1977, we get beautiful music, Amy Grant's self-titled album. My woke queen. Now there's beautiful music I like so much of what's going on in that chorus, but man, I wish I had, I wish I had audio whiteout for when you came inside me. I just Uh really want that Mm -hmm. out of there. 
Yeah, this was a a more innocent time, apparently. Like, that would never fly now. That's not happening. I mean, I joke about the sexual nature of like Christian worship songs, but that was just really. That's that explicit. Yeah. It was very explicit. Maybe yeah, that's Amy. just I, not I the think, terminology people used back then. I, I think yeah. I think it still was. It's late 70s. It's not it's not a it's not a hundred years ago, you know? I also think as I recall, I don't remember how old she was when this came out, but she was discovered. I mean, she, her music career started when she was like 17. Yeah, something. I she think she's 17 when young. this record yeah. gets made. She's obviously not, her head's not in the gutter. No, but it's not Amy's fault. We're also getting into like this kind of late 70s, the sort of disco production, the mm-hmm. profligate use of string beds, you know, and it feels like a, a sitcom yes, intro. Like I feel yes. like I'm a, yeah, I'm about to drop in on like full house. That's or something. incredible. That's exactly like. what it sounds like. There's some real, the really fun stuff in that vein to come. Uh, but also in 77 Keith green debut album for him who mm-hmm. has ears to hear. Here is Game Changer. You put this love in my heart. A great, great song. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I tried but could not refuse. You gave me no time to choose. You put this love in my heart. I wanna know where the bad feelings go. When I'm depressed and I get down so low, and then I see you come. a killer killer song like that does to me stack up with elton john that is songwriter like even the lyrics are not as cheeseball they're not as direct like he's he's got a little more nuance there uh but sonically that piano part and Mm -hmm. the the melody in the chord oh my gosh i I mean vocally i still think elton john's gonna be yeah sure I think the nostalgia factor is what makes me love his vocals. But if you like listen to them without really loving him, it's a little like Kermit the Froggy. It's <laughs> like it's a little. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't grow up on him, and his his voice does not bother me at all. It doesn't it doesn't rub me wrong or weird or anything like that. It's just odd. I feel like his voice doesn't sound yeah, like it's unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I th- I think that that's probably just like a mileage varies person to person kind of a thing, man. I also am coming to understand with all the context, again, not having grown up with this music, really why he is such a big name. I mean, that just, that comes out of the gate and is like, yo, there's a new guy on the scene. And then of course he dies young. And so that always sort of increases, you know, solidifies him. Right. Exactly. From what I can understand, what I know about him too, he was just a pretty exceptional person. He had these huge convictions. He just like, I don't know. I just feel like he was a pretty intense guy in a good way, though. He was just beloved. People loved him. And he I don't know. There's, And again, I'm sure some of this comes from him dying early. We've all made he like he's a saint in our minds. Right. Like right. I grew up. Keith Green was on a pedestal in my household. Totally. And, you know, rightfully so. I've not dug super deep uh, into maybe I don't want to know if there was like problematic things about Keith Green. But as, to my knowledge, I don't know of any. So. He died died, died he young enough <laughs> before he could before he could make huge mistakes later in life. Oh, that's, um, hor- that's a horrible thing to admit, but it's probably true. Maybe. Okay, we just have like two years left. So 1978, Bob Dylan has a born again experience. So here uh, is a quote from Andrew McCarran's book, Light Come Shining, 
On November 17, 1978, while playing a gig in San Diego, an audience member apparently threw a small silver cross onto the stage, and Dylan felt impelled to pick it up and put it into his pocket. The following night in Tucson, Arizona, he was feeling even worse and reached into his pocket, pulled out the cross, and put it on. That night, while stuck inside his hotel room, he apparently experienced the overwhelming presence of Jesus, whose power and majesty he'd heard about through his girlfriends, Helena Springs and Mary Alice Artez, in addition to his recently converted bandmates, Stephen Souls, David Mansfield, and T-Bone Burnett. So he becomes a Christian, doesn't release anything sort of faith-wise till next year. We'll talk about that. But Dylan getting saved, I mean, this is later. Again, now we're six years removed from the peak in 1972, but obviously it's a big moment. Um, And especially for these more like serious musician types who Mm -hmm. all undoubtedly look to Dylan as, you know, the best of their generation, essentially. Yeah. It's like Taylor Swift having a born again experience in 2023 and going, I'm going to make Christian music. Like the CCM world would gather around her like a bucket of moths you know, suffocating Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. light they could get, right? It would be the biggest story. So I mentioned Barry Maguire. We get to Cosmic Cowboy here, 1978. This song is hard to describe or even talk about. I have to just sort of play some of it. It's, I don't, I don't, (laughs) I can't can't talk about it. You're you're used to hear it. I met a Cosmic Cowboy riding a starry range. He's a supernatural plowboy and he dressed up kind of strange. And at first, I didn't see him being out there on the run. Yeah, but that old hat that he's wearing is shining brighter than the sun. And when my eyes adjusted to the flashing of a smile, yeah, I saw his invitation. Say, come on, Barry, we'll go riding for a while. Not not made under the influence of drugs, as far as I understand it. But I don't know how he else was, to explain he was, it. He was high on the <laughs> Lord. Stoned out of his mind on the Lord, apparently. Uh, it's rainbows a, were coming out of his eyes or something. Yeah, that was... Cowboy of oh. the Light, shooting rainbows through the night is the lyric there. Uh, mm. Whisper sung by the background vocalists. This could have been like Always Sunny, like part of their musical, I feel like, like Cosmic Cowboy. Yeah. I could see I could see them getting into that. As I said, 78, 79, we're to this place where there is this really high kind of disco-infused production value stuff going on. I really like this track, Got to Believe, by Sweet Comfort Band, which is a pretty great band name, by the way. Yeah. You've probably never heard of this. No. Definitely not. Album is called Breaking the Ice. There's like a giant ship kind of going through <laughs> like like an icebreaker ship in the Arctic or whatever. All right. Here's Got to Believe, 
great. It's so great. Yeah. I'm kind of shocked. Sweet comfort, huh? Who knew? Okay, I'm going to skip. We're just going to straddle 78 and 79 because this is a better song to hear next. This is my favorite song I have discovered from this entire research process for this like 14 years of music. This is a band called the Imperials. The song is called I'm Forgiven. I'm going to play it for you and then I'll talk a little bit about the Imperials. If you don't love this song, Lindsay, I'm going to. I mean, it's lyrically, it's cheesy, of course, but if you don't, <laughs> we're start, not going to be able to be friends anymore. I don't know. It's not that far. I saw you doing disco fingers for sweet comfort. Mm-hmm. If I don't see mm-hmm. something vaguely Saturday night fever esque from okay. you, I'm going to feel like I, I failed, but here's, here's I'm forgiven. Did it, did it pass? Yeah. Oh, I love like, it. I love that song. Just makes you want to get up and dance. Yeah, that's a really fun Okay. Track. Just two more songs to play here. Keith Green, back to 78, puts out No Compromise. Uh, this song, I don't like it as much as you put this love in my heart. It's giving me a minor evangelism trauma response, but let, let's see what you think. <laughs> don't you care? Don't you care? Are you gonna let them drown? How can you be so numb Not to care if they come You close your eyes And pretend the job's done Oh, bless me, Lord Bless me, Lord You know, it's all I ever hear No one aches No one hurts little guilt ridden there heavy handed (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i get where he's coming from and if you really like if you really believe that eh, 25 percent of my entire country and all these people living here are going to heaven and everybody else is going to eternal hell and you don't see people acting appropriately then i get where a song like that comes from yeah but the way i experience it is just like total guilt trip and the kind of thing that i've had to take a very long time and do a lot of work to get free from because uh, it's tied up with this very weird theology that I don't think works at all. And, you know, I, we don't have to go into that. I will say, do you know the Easter song? What album was that on? Because that was like, to me, the quintessential Keith Green. Let's song. hear it. Let's hear Easter it's a, song. It's a, it's a, it's a banger. Joy to the world. You can be born again. Yeah, I, that does not do anything for me. Not having grown up with it. I'm sure it's going to sound, I mean, we listen to the song every Easter. Yeah. Like it's, it is the, 
it's your it's it's very celebratory. It's really celebratory, like, and that was kind of his weird. It's it kind of takes movements. It's not a real normal song that's like verse chorus verse chorus. But mm-hmm. yeah. Anyways, sorry. Thank you for letting me go down that little road quickly. Hey, you know what? You, you're doing me a solid here, so I'm happy to return the favor. <laughs> oh, you mean talking about music for four hours <laughs> with you? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. We're we're making an ep- we're, we're making episodes. Fun. I'm getting some yeah. content out of it, but of course, I'm just incredibly enjoying myself here. All right, we got one song left, and it's Dylan. Dylan's gonna gonna kind of close us out. This is so '79. He puts out "Slow Train Coming." Now, the next year will be "Saved," 1980. That's the like true Christian album, but. Veteran R&B producer Jerry Wexler is producing Slow Train Coming. He says that Dylan tried to evangelize him during the recording. So even though the record is not as sort of religious, like he's definitely in that world. Wexler apparently said to him, Bob, you're dealing with a 62-year-old Jewish atheist. Let's just make an album. (laughs) (laughs) And they did. Love it. And uh, track one, Gotta Serve Somebody, is a great song. And, you know, I actually still think... This sort of just brief Dan theology corner here, the idea that you got to serve somebody or as Trip Fuller recently put it on a panel at our live event, you know, in Seattle, like we were talking about children and teenagers and stuff. And it's like, look, you're going to be formed by something. And I actually think it's a pretty good argument for utilizing religious traditions, you know, especially in your children's lives, because they'll be formed by TikTok or whatever their friends are into or you know, like there's no not being formed by culture. So we can make choices about what will form us and what will provide us with various resources and tools for, for dealing with life's problems, as well as language for understanding life's great joys. And so that's my slight soapbox, you know, totally standing for Dylan and got to serve somebody here, which is a controversial take, I know. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. A social life with a long string of pearls But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody Oh, yeah Well, it may be the devil Or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. There are more artists that we have not talked about who can't cover everyone. I just want to throw out some honorable mentions here. John Michael Talbot, Daniel Amos, Honey Tree, Jamie Owens Collins, Phil Kagi, Randy Matthews. That list could go on. Uh, there's too many. I mean, we we recorded, you know, for almost three hours between these two parts and, and we only got through what we got through. So there's a lot, but that we, we, we did it. We, we got through the chronology. We what, did it. I want to yeah. know, I have a couple kind of, large scale takeaways. I'm curious what yours are. Oh, I think I'm just sort of impressed with the range of styles of music. I mean, obviously we heard some real cheesy stuff in there, but it was less cheesy than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. For sure. I, I kind of came into this episode going like, I don't know. And I've, I've enjoyed it. I, you're an excellent, uh, guide. I think that's what I would call you. Thank this. you. I learned, I learned a lot. I have, you know, regrets around Andre Crouch, clearly. Big time. <laughs> like that's missed out on that. Regret but... regret for having missed out rather than FOMO. Yeah. 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 So, but yeah, I'm just sort of impressed with how 
this movement was able to really create some seemingly very unique music that didn't just feel like the W style knockoff of things that kind of that Christian music ended up being. And mind you, you know, like, I don't know if I talked about it, but like I worked in Christian bookstores for years specifically because I wanted to like get the discounts on CDs. So like a lot of these names are familiar and there's corners of like the CDs that I would organize that I was just like, oh, that is some cheesy crap. But now looking back at it, I'm like, oh, actually like the second chapter of Acts kind of rips. So, they rip, who knew? Man. Yeah. 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 I've got, I got a couple, I mean, obviously I've talked about specific songs that I've really liked along the way, but sort of zooming out. Number one, I just think this music played a huge role in the plausibility structures of evangelicals and the various assumptions that that worldview makes about the world. I think you hear it in the songs and the fact that this music was shared had such penetration within that group. You really can't talk to anybody who was a part of that seventies revival that didn't listen to these bands, like in, in a really fun way, like their eyes light up when I bring it up to them. And, And it's really fun to talk about. So I just think that the music was actually very important. And some of those worldview items were really hurtful and and harmful to me and many other people. So that's very much a mixed bag. But I also just have to appreciate any movement where music is that central because those Mm -hmm. are the movements that affected my life as well. So I can sort of see my own psychology and the, and the group psychology of my friends growing up in that just, just a different time and a different genre. Right. Yeah. The thing that still, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around it. It's jumping from all this good music to then the the Reagan and the conservative. Like, I feel like what we listened to, there just wasn't a full, like you start hearing those. And honestly, maybe even the Keith Greens of the world, as much as I don't want to admit it, because I want to like, again, he was like a prophet. That's how he was viewed in my household, like this bringer of truth. But now going back and listening, like, I think right now in real time, I'm like, oh, he was part of the problem. Like he was stoking that fear about the evils of the world and, and just making, reminding everyone that we're all like pieces of shit and, you know, those fun messages of my youth. So yeah, maybe he's, maybe he ushered in the Reagan era and I really don't want to admit that, but, or helped was a part of it, let's say. I don't want to admit it. I want him to be this like paragon of like hippie Christianity that I can go back to and find, but uh, truth. Well, economically he was distinct. Like he gave a lot of his records away for free, which the labels didn't want him to do. So he he was sort of anti-capitalist in practice in that sense and and really radically egalitarian. So I think you can at least hold on to that. Even if Mm -hmm. I don't know, I I don't know enough about him to to talk about his theology or, or whatever. I think for me, the clear moment in understanding that sociopolitics thing was actually just that, that Billy Graham moment and realizing that he's kind of name dropping these social issues, but there aren't a lot of teeth to that message. And really mm-hmm. it's all still subsumed into individual relationship with Jesus. That's the real mechanism. And these people that joined this movement so many of them had radical spiritual experiences, radical conversion mm-hmm. experiences. I think those experiences are real. I think there's a mountain of sociological and psychological evidence that they 
are real experiences, much like experiences people have on psychedelics and stuff like that, and and that they genuinely change people's lives in enduring ways and give them meaning and content and you know linguistic content for understanding what they've gone through. And now you got you have this huge group of people who all share that language. So they all have a shared meaning. And those people, with the exception of like maybe the fringe true hippies who have like a a radical sort of drug experience of Jesus or something, other than that, they're mostly not radicals. They are Mm -hmm. more middle of the road. And so it's just not surprising to me that by the time of Reagan, they're like, yeah, they've had some kids. You know, they, they're worried about their kids now. Crime's been bad. Yeah, morning in America. My other takeaway is, is just musically. Um, you can really hear the progression from late 60s, early 70s, such a wide and eclectic mix. Then really kind of toward the end of the 70s, it's getting to a more focused, more glossy, more pop-oriented, more commercial sound which then is really the moment right before CCM kind of really starts. And we know where it went from there. And that's you you get, we got right up to that elbow, basically that, that kind of transition point. And I could hear that, but along the way, just so many pleasant surprises for tracks that are just so I've, I've so much more digging to do basically. Yeah. It was like, it was definitely a fun, like rabbit trail to go down. I, I liked taking a deep dive and learning about some folks that uh, I'd never heard of before. I got to go. What is it? Uh, Bill, wait, what? Bill Fay? Bill Fay. Yeah. I gotta, I'm, I'm into that. And I, as soon as you dropped the Jeff Tweedy, I was like, okay, I'm in. Great. Yeah, Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring on more Bill. So I got to go. And so is he still Christianish or is he not, his music not religious anymore? He, he still is. He has uh, maintained a, a devout Christian faith and, you know, let's let's let Bill Fay and Jeff Tweedy kind of kind of play <gasps> us out us here. Out? They're okay. gonna play us out. Uh, I like this, Lindsay. Thank you so much for joining me for this. Your podcast, Holy Ghosting, wherever people mm-hmm. listen to podcasts, all the all the places. Yep. Oh, I was gonna say we're in the middle of uh, season two right now, which is about taboos, and our next episodes that we're releasing will be on. We just did one on uh, neurodivergence in high control religions. We've got one coming out on Christian parenting. We're gonna release an episode on death, and then um, all of our. We're gonna end season two with Pride Month. We're gonna be talking to various uh, LGBTQ theologians and some some fun exvangelicals and all of that. So I'm pretty excited for what we have coming down the pipeline. That sounds rad. This is Bill Fay featuring Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. 2012's album Life is People. Also just a great a great three words. This is a song called This World. This world's got me on my knees. There was a time when I used to stand tall. Factory 